But what I love is that several of you asked me a really good question in kind of the hours and even days that followed last Sunday, which was, hey, this is a beautiful image, but how do we do that? How do we actually fill ourselves up with Jesus? You know, it's, it's a phrase that, that really is like, it's built around imagery and metaphor. So it's pretty, it's easy to say in a context like this and amen it, but what does it actually mean? What does it mean in your day-to-day life to come to the fountain of the living water of Jesus, right? We, we dug into John 4 and, and talked about how Christ called himself the living water and said, come and, and drink and, and be filled so that you don't thirst again. And we're just like, oh, that's so beautiful. But what, how do you do that? It's a really good question. It's a really good question because it shows a couple things. First, it shows that you guys were listening to me last Sunday, which just does my insecure heart a lot of good. Uh, But second, it shows some real wisdom. Because the reality is, a vision statement, a, a, a plan as a church that's really beautiful, but doesn't have any practical outworking, is pointless. <laughs> if it's just a beautiful image... But when we leave this space, it doesn't do anything or mean anything. That's a waste of time, right? So what does it actually mean? Well, for four of the next five remaining Sundays in this series, we're going to talk about exactly that. We're going to dig into, I think, in some really practical ways, what does it look like for us as a church family and for each of us as individual followers of Christ to be the kind of Christians who are filled with Jesus, who are full of Christ in such a way that he overflows out of our life into the lives of those around us, that he radiates out of us into the world around us and the lives of the people we care about. And we're going to dig into some pragmatic stuff. Next week, Pastor Jim's going to jump into this really beautiful, old Christian idea that we call the mortification of sin. It's the killing of sin in your life. It's, it's the reality that the grace of Jesus is so present, so powerful, that we can walk in shameless and guiltless confession that we can draw our sin and our idolatry into the light and come together as brothers and sisters and help each other kill our sin, kill our idolatry so that we walk in greater holiness, greater connection to Christ. After that, we're going to talk about the partner idea to that. Again, this old Christian idea that's called the vivification of Christ, which is how do we daily bring ourselves back to the person and work of Jesus. And we'll talk about how we connect with Christ on, day, on a daily basis through really practical Christian rhythms like jumping into the word and reading God's word for your life and praying and meditating and the different ways we connect to him. And then after that, Pastor Jesse's gonna take and dig us into the idea of Christian community, how we come together as brothers and sisters as the hands and feet of Jesus and do this work for one another, how we fill each other up with Jesus by how we love and how we serve and how we connect. It's going to be cool. But to get there, I want to set kind of the theological groundwork to make that make sense. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to be fluent in the gospel. And I'm going to say it this way, because I think this piece is important. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that you, as a follower of Christ, need to be intentional that you do not forget the gospel. 
Do not forget the gospel. We're going to be in Galatians 2 today, if you guys want to go ahead and turn there. And by the way, if you're in this space today and you have a Bible with you, we have house Bibles underneath the rows. You're welcome to grab one. I'll tell you guys, our, our pastors here at Emmanuel, we are passionate about God's people having access to God's word. So if you're in this space and you do not have a physical copy of the Bible, I would encourage you to just snag one of those and keep it. Or even better, uh, come talk to one of the pastors and we'll give you one with slightly larger type in it. Uh, that is your punishment for not bringing a Bible as we make you show the whole church your readers uh, when you read. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, um, we're going to get to Galatians 2 today to talk about this idea of remembering the gospel. Don't, don't forget the gospel. But to get there, give me just a couple minutes. Essentially, it comes back to this idea, church. As followers of Jesus, we have to continually bring ourselves back to the gospel of Jesus. You have to speak the gospel day by day by day by day. You have to actively seek to remember the gospel day by day by day. You should speak the gospel so much that you become fluent in the gospel, that it becomes the very language you speak. You know, for, for, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the gospel becomes, becomes the heart language of Christ's followers. You know, the, the deepest way that we think about and look at the world. Fluency is important, guys. Now, fluency is a linguistic term, right? Fluency refers, like when you hear fluent, we think of someone who's fluent in a language. And you can look that up, and there's a couple different ways they measure that. But we all know what that means, right? If you're fluent in a language, you can speak it, you can read it, you can understand it, you can think in that language. Someone who's fluent in a language can be dropped into a culture where that's the primary language, and they can't engage the world around them, right? It's, it's kind of how we think about that. But I want to use, intentionally use that term in reference to how, the, how Christian relates to the gospel. It should be fluent in the gospel. It should be so wormed down into your brain, into your heart, that you can think that way, you can understand that way, you can read, you can speak that way. And hopefully this will kind of help explain what I mean. So I took Spanish for four years in high school and one year in college. And I don't know Spanish. <laughs> I, don't, I struggled with Spanish. I, I, don't, I don't really have a brain for language, uh, but... Um, language education is something my family is pa was passionate about, so I took Spanish all four years of high school. And it just, like, it progressively got worse, like, the more classes I took, right? Like, by the time I got to my senior year and I took Spanish four, it was, like, just barely passing, like, in that lower D range where it's like, hey, like, you are probably not going to actually get credit for this class, right? And when I took my, my Spanish four final, my senior year of high school, it was the last final I took in all of my high school career. And it was like a seven-page final. And by a page and a half, two pages in, I was just lost. I had no concept of what was going on in this page anymore. And I finally was just like, you know what? I'm done with high school anyway. <laughs> And I gave up, and I turned it in. I walked up, just handed the teacher the final, and she's like, this is not even half done. And I was like, that's about as done as we're getting with this. And to this day, I believe, just as a, just as a supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired act of unmerited grace, 
Somehow, I passed that Spanish class by the skin of my teeth. And I really think it was just the Spanish teacher didn't want to have me lose credit for my last class I took in high school. Because there's no world where I actually passed that class, right? Which is, it's kind of funny, you know, like a young guy, you know, I, I took Spanish and all through high school, took it even into college, and I got worse in college, by the way. But the whole thing was, it just didn't take. It didn't take... It didn't take because it was really hard. It didn't come naturally to me. So I didn't really practice it. I didn't work at it. I didn't speak it, right? And what happens with language is if you don't speak it, you forget it. That's how that works. Now, what makes this a little funnier is that at the same time, my church would do these mission trips to Matamoros, Mexico, like once or twice a year, and we'd take some high school kids and college kids. And so me and the other youth pastor would take these trips, and they would, the other youth pastor would look to me and go, hey, like you've taken a bunch of Spanish, so you can help. I could not, in fact, help in any way that was any way meaningful, right? Like, I got to a point by the end there where it was like, if you gave me a brochure in Spanish and I had time to just sit with it, I could maybe like, I could maybe get like a third or half of it and tell you what it was. But it just, it just wasn't there, right? And I didn't like it. It was hard for me. It didn't come naturally. So I just stopped doing it. I stopped practicing. I stopped speaking it. And what happens with a language when you don't speak it, is you forget it. Forget it. I never got to a place of fluency with Spanish, but even what I gathered, I lost. If I were to start trying to learn Spanish right now, I would be, except for counting to 10, I would be starting from absolute scratch, right? Just starting, I would be starting at the door of the explorer level of Spanish. I am at the point now where I cannot fluently order from Taco Bell, right? Like I need... The guy in the drive through speaker is correcting my pronunciation of Chalupa. <laughs> it's where we're at, right? But here's the thing. I use this analogy to bring us back to the truth of the gospel because the reality is, as a follower of Christ, if you don't speak the gospel, you will forget it. It's how it works. Even if you have fluency in a language, if you don't speak it, you will forget it. And we don't want to forget the gospel. We want to be fluent in the gospel. To do that, you have to speak it and speak it every day. You have to come back to it continually. Grace on every horizon. You have to come back to the present, real, lavish grace of Jesus over and over and over and over. But what often happens for us, what I think we're going to see today, is that for whatever reason, as followers of Christ, we stop speaking the gospel. For whatever reason, and we'll dig into a little bit of this, but we I think we oftentimes do. We stop speaking the gospel. And slowly, because you don't speak it, you forget it. And what happens is that although oftentimes we claim Christ, we actually show up to church having forgot the gospel. Having a heart that is not full of the living water of Jesus, but rather having a heart that is empty, that is dry, and that is lifeless. Beloved of Jesus, you do not have to live there. If that, if that resonates with some of your spiritual experience right now, I want to I encourage you with this before we jump into it. You don't have to live there. You don't have to be dry. Your experience of faith doesn't have to be painful or lifeless or driven by guilt and sorrow with views of God where you, where you think he's upset with you and disappointed with you and you're striving to regain his favor. You don't have to 
to live there. And by the way, I would say, church, if that does strike a chord with you, then it's very likely that you have simply forgotten the gospel. You've simply forgotten the amazing, present love and grace of Jesus. Beloved, fluency is important. If you don't speak it, you'll forget it. It's how it works. We don't want to forget the gospel. So, jump in with me to Galatians chapter 2. Whew, I got a little too into that introduction. I apologize. <laughs> Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, we read this. But when Cephas, this is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Whew, we're starting out good. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from gems, James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified in Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Obviously not. If I rebuild these things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. But through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died for nothing. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we take a few minutes to sit in this text, I just want to ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us fresh eyes and ears to hear from you. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us, whether we've been following Christ for decades, whether we're still wrestling with whether or not we want to follow Christ, regardless of where we are in the spectrum of our faith journey, Lord, I pray that right now you would give each and every one of us just some, just some fresh hearts to hear from you again, to be drawn back the amazing grace of your gospel. Holy Spirit, give us fresh ears and fresh eyes. Cut through the callousness that we, that we put on our own hearts. Cut through how used, just how, how comfortable we get with church life and church culture and church language. And Lord, meet with us afresh. Challenge us afresh. And let us leave here today having heard from you what our hearts need. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for these things, Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Woo. So, let me do this. Let me, let me take this text in Galatians. We'll, we'll kind of put it in context within itself, within the book of Galatians, kind of where it sits in the New Testament. But ultimately, what we're going to see in this is that Paul is using this story with Peter as just kind of this example of exactly what we're talking about, which is that Christians left unto themselves forget the gospel. 
Christians who are not actively speaking the gospel, who are not fluent in the gospel, will forget it. And when you forget the gospel, death and suffering and dryness and all those things are not far behind. I think it's going to be good for us to just be challenged by this idea today, to be brought back to the lavish, lavish, present, available love and grace of the gospel over and above our works of righteousness and the works of the law and all the ways we try and prove ourselves. Hopefully today, what we'll get is just an invitation to be reminded of how insanely much Jesus loves you. And then we'll end our time by just enjoying that, celebrating that, and taking communion. Sound good? Awesome. So, Galatians. This is one of the first letters Paul wrote. This is early on in Paul's ministry. After his first missionary journey, he wrote this letter back to the leaders of the churches he planted. So you can go back and read in Acts 13 and 14 about Paul's first missionary journey. Paul was a leader at the church at Antioch. Him, alongside a guy named Barnabas, were sent and commissioned by that church to travel through a region called Galatia and Asia Minor, what, what we call Turkey, and preach the gospel, planting churches as they went. You should go, like, if you haven't read Acts 13 and 14 recently, like, just put that in the queue of your Bible reading this week. It's one of my favorite chunks of text is Paul's first missionary journey. It's one of the first recorded intentional, specific missionary endeavors in all of the scripture. And it's just buck wild. It is a wild story. It's really powerful. And this is just finished up. Paul and Barnabas have made their way through what we call Turkey and made their way back to this church that sent them, this church at Antioch. And when they arrive, they arrive home to controversy. And they're receiving pressure from two sides. First of all, they're receiving pressure from the church in Jerusalem. So, so remember, right? Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. And in the beginning, Christianity was just considered a sect of Judaism, right? All of the original believers were Jewish converts to the faith. And what started to happen really early on is that the mother church in Jerusalem saw the gospel spreading throughout the region, throughout Samaria, throughout the ends of the earth, and they started to get really uncomfortable about how non-Jewish Christianity was becoming. And they started to put this pressure, and this, by the way, gets us back to the key question of all of Galatians, which is essentially this, do you have to be Jewish to be a Christian? Which, by the way, for I'm pretty sure almost all of us in this room, that's a pretty, pretty important question to answer, right? Do you have to be Jewish to be a Christian? And these, these conserv theologically conservative Christians from Jerusalem, their answer was, yes. Yes, you do. And they had a very good theological reason for this. Because remember, Judaism is built around God's covenant relationship with his people, right? And if you go back and read the Old Testament, what you find is that God establishes a relationship with his people through covenant where he says on the Mosaic Covenant, if you do this, I will give you all these blessings. And if you do this, I will give you all these curses. Because I am holy and sin matters, but I want to be your God and want you to be my people. So walk in holiness like this and receive my covenant blessing. If you walk in sin like this, you will receive my covenant curse. And so these conservative Jewish Christians say, hey, listen, this is actually really important because God is holy. And these laws aren't just arbitrary things. These are holiness issues. 
These are, we, we do these things, we wear these clothes, we eat this food, we act this way because we believe that God is holy and we want to glorify him. And so they look at a guy like Paul who's traveling around the world going to non-Jews and just saying, hey, listen, gospel is grace. Come on in, come be a part of it. And they go, no, 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 no. You are telling a lie to them. You're telling them that they're okay with God and they're not. If they don't live this way and do these things, then God will not be pleased with them. Now, that's the pressure hitting Antioch from Jerusalem. But there's also pressure hitting Antioch from the mission field. Because you see these these non-Christian Jews from the region where Paul was planting and traveling, traveling and planting churches, they see Paul go into these exclusively Gentile communities and preach the same gospel and plant churches that aren't just that aren't just bi-ethnic, but are exclusively Gentile in their ethnicity. And they go, hey, 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 that's not how this works. You have to be in God's covenant to be included in anything God is doing. And they come behind Paul and go through these churches and start telling them, hey, look, whatever this guy taught you, it's nuts. That's not how it works. God does love you and can include you in his covenant, but only if you do this, 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 and this. You have to follow all these laws. And so now these brand new churches that Paul's planted, they're sending him letters going, hey, man, uh, real quick, are you a heretic who lied to us? Uh, Was this whole thing like a complete waste? And so Paul, sitting at Antioch with Barnabas, is getting this pressure Now, from both sides, the followers of Christ from Jerusalem are saying, hey, we think you might be a heretic. And now the the churches that he planted are going, are you sure you're not a heretic? (laughs) Right? So Paul writes Galatians in direct response to this pressure and this controversy going on. One of the earliest recorded pieces of Paul's writing we have. And Galatians is divided into two sections. The first two chapters of Galatians, Paul basically just retells his testimony and kind of reestablishes his authority as an apostle. Here's who I am. Here's how God called me. Look, I went and talked to the other apostles. They said I was good, right? Like, we're all on the same page on this thing. I do, in fact, have the apostolic authority to go out and preach and plant churches. And they're like, oh, okay. And then he gets into the second section, and he gets into his teaching where he just brutally rips apart all these theological arguments telling these believers that they have to submit themselves to the yoke of the law. It is like a mic drop chunk of text as Paul is just like, you guys are idiots if you believe this. They're idiots for teaching you that. Come back to the great. He even said at one point, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? Like Paul does not mess around in Galatians. Our text is the transition between the two sections. So he tells this final story about Peter and then jumps straight into his teaching about his gospel, about the gospel of grace. And this narrative serves two purposes. First, it it reaffirms Paul's authority. Like in a very practical sense, the story we read is the apostle Peter shows up and sins and messes stuff up and Peter calls him out and calls him to accountability in front of everyone, right? So on the one hand, it does establish Paul's apostolic authority that he can call Peter out, right? Like that's a big deal. But the other piece here is that this is a perfect example of exactly what Paul is talking about for the entire rest of the book. So to understand that piece, follow me here for just a couple minutes. 
So remember, at this point in history, Judaism is it's a very specific expression of Judaism. Remember the whole covenant peace. God said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Do these things, receive the covenant blessings. Do these things, receive the covenant curses. Well, if you know the Old Testament, you know they did the bad things, right? And they received the covenant curses. And Israel as a nation and as a people were destroyed. And we're now several hundred years later of Israel not existing as a nation, but still existing as a people and longing for God to restore covenant blessing to them. And in that season of the exile, Jewish theology developed in a really unique and interesting way. This is actually the philosophical root of Pharisaical Judaism, right? The the Pharisees, the guys Jesus always hung out with during his ministry. It was this idea that we have received the judgment of God because we broke covenant. We, we did the things we weren't supposed to do, so we received the covenant curses. If we want to receive the covenant blessings, then all of God's people have to repent and start doing the acts of God again. We have to live holy lives the way Moses described for us. And if God's people would live in the covenant, like in, in, in holiness and obedience, then, then God would restore the covenant blessing. And so the pharisaical uh, kind of drift of Judaism was really pushing for this personal and communal holiness. But after several hundred years, it wasn't working. Israel's still a conquered people. And so what they began to do is they said, look, I know we're all doing our best to follow the laws here, but something's not working. So let's do this. Let's add a whole bunch of laws, what are often called hedge laws, where if God gave a specific command that said, don't eat this kind of food, they said, hey, let's add a whole bunch of extra stuff around that to make sure we don't even get close to eating the wrong kind of food. So let's make sure everyone washes their hands a whole bunch before they eat. And let's make sure that we only buy food from certain places. And let's make sure that we don't touch other people while we're eating. And let's make sure that Jews only eat with Jews. Because if you eat with a Gentile, what if the Gentile had unclean food for breakfast and then he like touches the plate and then you touch the plate and you get a little bit of unclean food particles and then you eat it and then you're unclean. Woo. They said, let's set all these things in place, these hedges to keep us from even getting close to breaking the law, Right? So by the time you get to first century Judaism, to the early church, a lot of the practices of the Jewish faith were really sacred, really important to them, really connected to their understanding of holiness, their understanding of how God's people connect to God, but are not actually commanded in Scripture. They're not actually there. They're cultural, right? So what happens in this context is Peter shows up to the church at Antioch and he's hanging out and he's celebrating this bi-ethnic church with Jews and Gentiles, washed in the blood of Christ, living their faith out together. But then some of these conservative Gen- or Jewish Christians show up, these, the circumcision party, the Judaizers, those who claim that you must be fully Jewish before you can become Christian. And they are following not just the law, but even these head laws that says, hey, we can't even eat with Gentiles just so we don't accidentally cross-contaminate, right? Pretty intense. And Peter cows to the pressure. He bows down to it. Peter, the apostle Peter, preached at Pentecost Peter, preached to Cornelius the Gentile and baptized him and his family Peter, bows down to the pressure 
and leads the church in Antioch to sin. Leads them to a place of division and doubt and hurt and separation. Ugh, right? It says, because Peter, remember, Peter is authoritative. So when Peter does this, Paul even says, even Barnabas was led astray. And now all of a sudden you have this church where these Jewish Christians are going, oh, 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 we still got to do that thing? That's still a thing we have to do? Okay, yeah, 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 we'll do that. And so they're being led astray and led into legalism. And the Gentile Christians are going, wait a minute, we had communion together last week and now we can't even eat together? I'm unclean to you? And it's building up all these doubts and hurts and it's just destructive. It's destructive. So what does Paul do? Calls it out. Calls them out in front of everyone. Probably not a great day in Peter's ministry, right? But I want you to look at this. Look how Paul frames this. In verse 14, he says, they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. Some translations say they were out of step with the gospel. They had forgotten the gospel. The point, the point here is that Paul frames something that the people present viewed as a cultural issue and a doctrinal issue. Paul frames it as a gospel issue. The Jews of that day said, this is, this is what it means to be Jewish. This is part of our culture, part of who we are. The, the Jewish Christians, the Judaizers said, this is a holiness issue. This is about your understanding of sin, your understanding of who God is and what it means to honor him. And Paul said, no, this is a gospel issue. You've forgotten the gospel. You're out of step with the gospel. I think the reason for that is wonderful. Not wonderful, but it's good for us today. The reason for that is I believe these Christians in the first century did exactly what we do. <laughs> did exactly what we do. They have the same temptation that we have. Even leaders, even apostles to do exactly what we as followers of Christ do today, which is that oftentimes we see the gospel of Jesus as the entryway into the kingdom of God. The good news of who Jesus is, of what he did for you and me, that amazing, present, forgiving, restoring love, right? That, that, that a beautiful, fresh, clean, living water that, that comes to you and says, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, come, come and drink for free and be included. That amazing love, that's what gets you in to the kingdom. You share the gospel with lost people. That way they'll know how much Jesus loves them, how they can be included in his kingdom no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what brings in that space, come exactly as you are and receive the free love and grace of Jesus. What amazing news. By the way, each and every one, each and every one of us, right, that's our testimony. That at some point, whether it was instantaneous or took place over months or years, at some point you had clear, sober eyes on just how much of a sinner you were. And you realize that the God of the universe, your creator God, saw you even more clearly, saw into the depths of your brokenness and sin, and yet his response to you was love and inclusion and forgiveness. Every single one of us, that's our testimony. And we realize just how amazing the love of Jesus is, to love even us in our sin and to call us from death to life, to give us forgiveness, to include us in his kingdom, Amen. That gospel, oftentimes we see that as how you get in. 
But once you're in, once you enter into the kingdom, once you receive that grace, once you identify as a Christian, then oftentimes we flip a switch and we pivot from the amazing, life-giving, sin-forgiving love of Jesus. And then we start to worry about personal holiness. Now you're in the kingdom. Now you need to be holy. Now you need to be mature. Now you need to do the right things. You got the seat on the bus and you got it for free, but now you better work your tail off to keep it. You better do the right things. You better believe the right things. You better vote the right way. I hope that doesn't step on too many toes. We could can't do our way into salvation, right? You can't do enough to be holy enough to obtain salvation. We all would affirm that. And yet for some reason, oftentimes, once we receive that grace and get invited into the family of Jesus, we subtly believe and then subtly teach that now that you're here, you better earn your continued place in the family through righteous living. Does that feeling strike home for anyone or is this just me being confessional from the pulpit, right? Many of us, many of us entered into the kingdom of God with joy, with a sigh of relief as you saw just how much Jesus loved you. As you saw just how, how, how far he was willing to go to cover, to forgive, to destroy your sin and bring you in. Come on. Many of us, like, we can look back on those early days of our faith and think about the fire that was in us, the joy that was in us, the freedom that was in us. We said, I can't believe the creator God loves me this much. And yet, for many of us, a few years into our faith journey, we found ourselves with a lot less joy, more driven by guilt, stuck in the same sin patterns that we can't seem to break out of, returning to the same idolatry and living in this just weird cycle of continually thinking that God is mad or disappointed with you because you are wasting his grace on your sinful and rebellious life. Anybody? Just me, maybe? Here's the thing, church. That's an easy trap to fall into. And some of you, even as I'm saying this, this is kind of rough on your feathers a little bit. Not because you're like, wow, that's my story. Because you're going, well, yeah. Well, yeah. You do need to kill your sin. See, this is why it's an easy trap to fall into. Because you do need to kill your sin. Because God does want to see you grow in maturity and grow in holiness. Because that is part of the journey of following Christ. Is actually maturing and growing and killing your idols, and repenting of your sin, and becoming more and more like Jesus. I mean, even in his very commission, I go, I go, go back and read Matthew 28. What does Jesus say in his commission? Teach them to obey everything I have commanded them. Obedience to an ethical standard is actually part of the Christian life, right? So yeah, of course, of course, Many of us come back to that. Listen, guys, Jesus loves you, and he loves you enough that he actually does want you to live a holy and ethical life. But there's an important nuance here, an important nuance that many of us miss. I want you to hear this, church. The doing 
of our faith. The work of our faith to grow and mature and be more holy. The doing of our faith must always be fueled by the being of our faith. The identity of our faith given to us by the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus frees you from the treadmill of law and works-based righteousness. It frees you from that. When you entered into the kingdom, it was because something in your heart awoke to the truth that you couldn't earn your salvation. That you were dependent on his love and his grace. And he gives that stuff out like it's water. You can't earn your salvation, but beloved, beloved, you can't earn your standing with God at all. You can't, you can't. Listen to this, listen to this. The gospel of Jesus has put you in such a safe position with God. Because of who Christ is, because of what he's done, your standing with God is secure and you can do nothing to change it. Positive or negative. Beloved, hear this. You are not strong enough or authoritative enough. You cannot work hard enough or be holy enough to make God love you more. You can't. That is not in you. In Christ, your standing with God is secure. It is locked in. And some of you don't like that. Like, I know that's like not a thing we're supposed to believe, but I guarantee some of us in the room are like, I've been to a lot of stinking Bible studies, and I am a pretty holy person, actually. <laughs> Listen, probably. <laughs> you probably are. It doesn't matter. You can't, you can't do anything to make God love you less or make God love you more. You don't have, you don't have enough in you to overcome the massive work of love accomplished on your behalf through our Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't have enough in you to move that needle, beloved. You are secure in Christ. You're fighting for holiness. You're fighting for maturity. Does nothing to change your relationship to God. Now, having said that, it does allow you to more vividly experience God's love for you and his presence in your life. When we, when we fight to kill sin and kill our idolatry, it does remove some of that fog so that we can see clearly what's already there. But beloved, it's already there. You are already secure in him. He already has your picture in his wallet. He is crazy about you. He's crazy about you. The gospel frees you from the treadmill. Part of the gospel story hear this, is acknowledgement that you are a sinner. You are a sinner. This means that continual sin, confession, repentance, and then experience of grace and forgiveness is the normative rhythm of the Christian life. It's normal. For the rest of your time on this cursed and broken earth, you will turn afresh to sin. You will. Because of who Jesus is, you get to confess that. You get to draw into the light with no shame, with no guilt. You get to repent of that, and you know what you'll experience every single time? 
the grace and love of Jesus that covers over, that invites you back in, that forgives you, that draws you into his family. And beloved, listen, even if you're like really good at this, and you manage to like kill some idols and you pull them out of your idol cabinet, you smash them to the ground and you break them and you're like, boom, I'm walking in victory. I'm walking in holiness here. The Holy Spirit out of his love for you will open the cabinet and go, hey man, I'm so glad you killed that idol. I'm so glad you're walking in holiness. Let's start looking at these other 485 you have over here. Let's go to this one now. That is what it means to be a broken, sinful human in this planet. Sin is part of your experience of this life. You will not reach a point where you're holy enough that God's like, dang, you did it. Good job. All right, I guess let's go to heaven. You're perfect now. No. Sin, confession, repentance, experience of grace and forgiveness and inclusion, these are the rhythms of the Christian life. You will come back to them again and again and again. You will sin again. You will return to old idols. You will grab those shattered pieces where you've been walking in victory and you'll pull out your spiritual Elmer's glue and you will stick that thing back together and you will draw straight from that empty well again going, what am I doing? But you will do it. And when you do so, and you confess and you bring it to the light, you'll be reminded that Jesus came to earth to save sinners. That Jesus loves sinners. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus forgives you. So you get to come to him in confession. You get to come to him in repentance. And every single time, every single time, he'll respond to you with grace and forgiveness afresh. Every day, every day. This is why some of you who are more justice-minded in the room don't like this idea. Because when you start thinking about this, you're like, well, what you're telling me is, no matter what I do, I'm going to keep sinning and Jesus is just going to keep forgiving me. That sounds like he doesn't actually care about sin. That sounds like I can just game the system. That sounds like all the work I do to be holy doesn't actually mean anything and I can just go on sinning that grace may abound. Paul explicitly addresses this idea. Look at verse 17 through 21, right? Like the grace of Jesus is so lavish that from the outside looking in, it really does just look like Jesus is okay with sin. But we know that's not true. We know that God hates sin. We know that it's rebellion against him. We know that God wants you to walk in holiness. But beloved, remember the gospel. Jesus died for sinners. And Jesus is a big God with a big love and a big gospel. And when he died on that cross, it wasn't like he was somehow limited to only see your life from birth through that moment at Christian summer camp. He saw the whole of your person beginning to end. He saw every way the curse affected you. He saw every idol you, w- you had turned to and you will turn to. He saw every sin that you loved. He saw every injustice done to you, every way the curse broke you and molded you. He saw the whole thing and said, my grace, my love, my forgiveness for that, for all of you. Amen. This is the love of Jesus. It sees your whole person with so much more clarity than you can ever see yourself. And says, I love you. You're in. You're part of my family. You're part of my kingdom. This, beloved, is why believers must continually, continually come back to the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of grace and not just grace, church, but lavish grace. 
And you must speak this every day. You must draw yourself back to this every day. This gospel, the gospel story is the most important story. It's the most important truth about reality. You must speak the gospel every day. The gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that says that God exists and he made everything that is and he made it good and made it perfect and made it for communion with him. Even these special creatures that he, that he made in his likeness, that he made like him, that he made to be connected in a relationship with him. But those creatures chose sin and rebellion and separation from him. They chose death and that sin came and ruined the entire good creation and took those special creatures made in his image and broke them so that their destiny was death, not life, not what they were made for. But the God is so good. He's so good, he's so loving, that he wasn't content to let his good creation and his special creatures like just wallow in death and suffering. And so he promised and said, I will fix what you have broken. I will restore what you have broken. And he fulfilled that promise in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who was God, but yet he was flesh. And he lived in this broken, sinful, cursed world, but he didn't sin. He lived a perfect life. And yet even though his life was perfect, he still died an unjust death. He still drunk the full wrath of God and paid the full price for sin. And in that sacrifice, made a way for his perfect righteousness to be put on you and your broken sinfulness to be put on him. And you can receive his ministry. And as his son, as his daughter, as his family, you can be restored and forgiven and drawn into eternal communion with your creator God. That is the gospel. That is the story you must speak every day. You must draw your soul back to over and over and over that gospel of lavish love and grace. Beloved, you must be fluent in the gospel. When you don't speak it, you will lose it. If you don't speak it, you will forget it. That's how it works. We don't want to be those who forget the gospel, as we all are tend to do. So you must speak it. You must remember it. You must come back to it over and over and over and over because it's that good. Because you don't have to walk on a treadmill trying to make God happy with you. You don't have to continually feel ridden by guilt because you struggle with sin in this cursed and broken world. You don't have to feel alone and isolated like other Christians are better than you. Like there's not a space for you. You need to walk in freedom. You need to walk in joy because of the gospel of Jesus. Come on, church. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And we're going to end, and I'm going to ask you guys to reflect on this gospel. And I'm going to end with a silly story, because I think it'll help. So, I told you how I'm not fluent in Spanish. And I used to go on these mission trips, and I was supposed to help with the Spanish, but I didn't actually speak Spanish. And so on one of these trips, in a long week of ministry, and at the end of the week, we said, hey, you know what we should do? We should bless these national partners, these pastors, who've been church planners, and these guys who've been operating as translators for us. So we said, hey, let's, let's rent a pavilion on the beach, because we're close, close to the beach. Let's rent a pavilion on the beach, and let's bring these families, these pastors, their wives, their kids, these translators, and their spouses, and their kids. Let's just do a big barbecue for them, and celebrate them, and celebrate them for serving us all week long, Right? And so we set this whole thing up. We tell them what we're going to do. We get all the stuff. We tell them what time to meet us there. We load up all these high school and college kids in our church buses, and we, and we drive to the beach, and we get there, and we're like, hey, 
good, good fortune for us. The beach is abandoned. This is amazing. And we're sitting there going, oh my gosh, it must be because we came on like a weekday or something. This is great. And so we go and we set up and we get everything set up and the kids are playing and we start trying to call these guys, but we don't have cell reception. And it's like, oh, they'll show up, but they don't show up and they don't show up and we can't get a hold of them. And so finally we go, you know what? It's a beautiful day. It's the end of our trip. Let's just celebrate it. So we barbecue and we celebrate. We have a party on the beach. We spend about five, six hours, all these high school and college kids out swimming in the ocean, taking pictures. I got a stack of pictures from this day. It's a beautiful day. Once the sun goes down, we pack up and we leave. And about 10 minutes later, we get back on the highway and we all get cell reception back. And me and the other youth pastor, our phones just start blowing up with texts and calls and voicemails. And it's from these pastors and our couple translators going, oh my gosh, are you guys okay? We couldn't find you. Is everything okay? And what we find out is the beach was closed because of a shark attack at that pavilion <laughs> that morning. And there was a sign on the pavilion saying beach closed due to shark attack. <laughs> but it was in Spanish. <laughs> and so we left 40 kids swim in the shark infested waters for hours. <laughs> and by the grace of God, no one died. <laughs> Here's why I end there. Because fluency is important. You're like, yeah, dang, it is. If you don't speak it, you will forget it. And beloved, if you forget it, you might get it. So let's take a few minutes. Let's remember the lavish, present love of our Jesus. Let's be brought back afresh to the gospel. And let's leave celebrating how good our God is.